Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My, this is the Word on the Hill. I already said that. See, I don't. This is why I don't start the podcast. Yeah, the, the, I, was, I was like, I was like, Scott. Basically, what happens is that um, is that we have this conversation and we start a conversation, and then um, and then I'm like, oh no, I have to do a reposition of the Blessed Sacrament and go and say mass, and then and then uh, Scott gets uh, gets very excitable about. Um, <laughs> About getting going about and so, my stewardship of your time. Yeah, and then uh, and then everything goes badly from there. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having my me. My name is Father Peter Mosset. My name is Scott Powell. I think did we already say that? You didn't say. Anything. I didn't say our names. You, I'm but, Scott Powell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, you guys. Um, there's no stress this week. Everybody's very relaxed. There's no tensions. <laughs> um, it's really wonderful. I'm so so thankful that there's um. That uh, we don't stand on the precipice of a whole universe uh, uh, tectonic shift underneath us. So we're just going to do this podcast as if uh, everything well, is normal. Well, we we all is not normal. I got to give a quick shout out first. Oh, okay. And I meant to give this one last week, but I just want to give a shout out to two focus missionaries that I met uh, at a wedding a couple weekends ago. Um, which was really exciting. They listened to the podcast, and it was really an honor to meet them. So just wanted to give a shout-out to Tess, who is a focus missionary at Harvard University in Baston in Cambridge. Have it. And to Sabrina, who's down at the University of Florida. So, guys, I got to meet them at a wedding, a lovely wedding a few weeks ago of some Camp Waitiwa counselors who got married. Um, and it was lots of fun. So, Sabrina and Tess, thanks for listening to the podcast. Great to talk to you the other week. And uh, here's to you and your ministries. Yeah, yeah. Don't fake the funk, man. Nope. Especially when you're living in Boston. Yes, indeed. Boston. Or, what's the other one? Uh, University of Florida, which I think is in Tallahassee. <laughs> Dude, uh, it's, this is this in is Florida. The, it's in Florida. Well, we're in the 31st Sunday of Ordinary Time, and um, 32nd. Sorry, pardon me. Pardon me. Pardon me. I said it tw- a couple. Wait, times. what is it? We're 32nd. The thir- you're right. You're yeah. right. 32 which you're right that you were wrong which dude you know that the, the the ordinary time is kind of the icon of the end of time At the eschatology of the ordinary cycle right so yes. it, so it's like you know like i'm i'm not saying i'm just saying that you know we should uh worship christ the king and I have our hearts uh, disposed to the Lord because that's good advice. We, should, we should always be prepared that tomorrow is the end of time and that the church will go on for 10,000 years. I'm glad we have today to do whatever we want to then, <laughs> if tomorrow is the end of time. Oh, yeah, exactly. Let's live it up today. <laughs> <sighs> our first reading is coming from the book of Wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Do you know what's really fun is when you realize <laughs> that, that, like, you have been given some portion of wisdom when you're reading the book of wisdom and you're like, I'm in on that. I got some flavor on that. I dig it. Yeah. All right, Do you our, feel that? I mean, I did the other day. I was okay. reading it and I was like, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Our Psalm is 63, mm-hmm. two to eight. And our response is from two B or not to B. Oh, well said. Well said. Our second reading is from first Thessalonians chapter four, verse 13 through 18. There is a shorter version but we ain't going to do that. No, like, why would you get less scripture? More scripture is happier scripture. And this is one of my favorites. This is the famous rapture passage. If you've heard of the rapture before, it comes from this. It Didn't Blondie do a song called Rapture? I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's their famous song. Um, uh, many Protestants have a misunderstanding of it. Yeah. I don't know how Blondie's theology plays out. I don't know. Is it, is it the rapture or the rapture? Because it's the one where Blondie, like, raps, dude. She's, she's like, if you're asking me to speak intelligently on the uh, canon of Blondie, I, I can't do it. 
this is the problem with academics. You just oh, get so narrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> All right. That's a joke because I'm being so narrow. Oh yeah. Oh, I, oh okay. See, I, the, so it's, yeah, it's self-deprecating, it's, yeah, exactly. but kind of in a, in a roundabout way. The other day, I came into Scott's office and I had had so much sugar. Oh my gosh! That, you like tackled me. Yeah, yeah. I was and like, I was doing a budget. <laughs> he was like, doing it was weird yeah. juxtaposition of things. And then I, because I was, I was you just were hyped like, up on candy. I was because for some reason there's a trend right now. Where people like pay, like have their kids give a portion of their candy. I made that up, and um, I started that. That's me. Yeah, and so I, I had, I, I've actually had a couple of people offer me such good things, and so <sighs> I offered you some. Yeah, and I have not been eating candy at all, so I eat it, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> and then and literally, I went, I went from you, the, your office, and then I was like, I heard you, and then I went downstairs. I heard, uh, yeah, then I went downstairs, and I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I okay. You did a few things before you made it down. There. I did. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is very good. Very good. Um, great. The 10 virgins. I'm excited about these readings, Father Peter. You are. Yeah. I mean, I've got nothing like it's going to blow everybody's mind, but I think there's some beautiful things going on. Well, um, that's is that because you have a portion of wisdom given to you? I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, if it, this is the thing is that if the insights that you have are fading, then it's Jeez. definitely not wisdom because it has to be resplendent and unfading. Yes, it is. Well, we'll find out. I okay. guess only time will tell, quite literally. Talk to me. Okay. So wisdom, of course, the wisdom of Solomon is one of what are called the deuterocanonical books. So they it doesn't show up in our Protestant friends' Bibles. Um, but it is believed to have been, you know, written around the time that the the uh, Septuagint is being taken form. For our um, pro- Protestant brothers and sisters, we have we have the word deuterocanonical. For many of you, the word is actually apocryphal. But that's a that's a very anti-Catholic term. Did you know that? That's yeah. a, that's a negative. That's a slam. I know term. that that's actually why I'm telling our oh, Protestant good. brothers and sisters because some of them may have tuned in. Absolutely. And no, though so, I know many Protestants who listen. And, and that, that's the thing is that apocryphal is an anti-Catholic term along with the hokey pokey. Because of, yes, that's true. <laughs> Although for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. But apocryphal suggests um, apocrypha suggests something that's hidden, and so the implication is sort of these were kind of secret, weird, hidden books that the church kind of pulled out to sort of use. In these ways that are that are sort of misguided, but Deutero suggests that it's, it's a second canon. It's a it's a it's a continuation of the canon of the Old Testament. It's not D U D E E R O like Deutero. No, it's not. It is secondary. Yeah, yeah. Not secondary. It's not. They're not second class books of the Bible. It's strictly a chronological term. So Dude, there's no stepchildren or God, bro. No, there's not. There's only children. So it's one of the Deuterocanonicals. The authorship uh, is unknown. It's often attributed to Solomon who was renowned for his wisdom. Um, but it, it's it's a gathering of sayings, basically, that were put together probably in a time of exile or in the time surrounding uh, the, the, the Greek empires sort of having taken over the land of Israel. Israel has been dealing with exile. She's been dealing with idolatry. She's been dealing with a, la- a loss of her identity, both spiritual and national. And these are sayings to try to remind Israel of who they are. And so the book is really split into three major parts. Kind of quick overview. The first part is the part about the two ways. So basically it, it sort of mirrors Deuteronomy in a certain sense. When Deuteronomy, remember when the laws are sort of listed out before they enter the promised land, they're told, you know, choose this day life or death. Here are the things that lead to life and happiness and flourishing, and here are the ways that lead to death. And so in wisdom, it's wisdom and life and foolishness and death. And it's basically saying, 
choose. Here's the Torah. Here's what God teaches us. Here is using things like creation and natural law, which all teach us who God is. And if we reject those things, if we reject God's word, if we reject things like natural law, if we reject what creation shows us, we will be not just punished, but we will be unhappy. We will be miserable, and those sins will reap their own punishment in a certain sense. So that's all laid out. And then in the middle part of the book where we get, it's a praise of wisdom. And wisdom, remember, we've talked about this on the podcast before, is described in the book of wisdom as a skill that is to be attained. It's not some sort of intellectual thing that we just sort of happen to have wisdom, or some people have magical knowledge that other people don't have. It's a skill that one has to study and work for to attain, like a craftsmanship. And so I think the word is chokmah in Hebrew, which is like learning a trade or a skill or woodworking or metallurgy or something, right? It's that kind of a thing. You have to work to gain wisdom, which which means we have to put in hard work to see the world rightly, to see the world through God's eyes. Which is not merely just like an academic exercise. No. So that's that's actually the thing is that I, I the other day I was asking myself, should I get a graduate degree? Should I was I was like I was like I already have a graduate. I have a master's. I was like maybe I want to study art history at the University of Trinity in Dublin because I love the book of Kells. That'd be a beast of a commute for you. It's a pretty hard commute. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. but but the airfare airfares are like buy one get one free. So at it's the moment, pretty good, yeah. you know. So but no, I I was thinking about that and I and I and I was like, no, actually there's a tremendous amount of information out there that that I actually don't need a degree to pursue a wisdom. It's called YouTube, bro. <laughs> <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> but, but no, honestly, the the world's libraries. I learned are how to fix a broken turn signal on my Jeep Wrangler from YouTube. Right, and so I did it successfully. So learning a skill, the hokma, being able yeah. to actually like go like like YouTube is this profound foundry of learning skills. It kind of is. Like 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 yeah, you can learn is. how to do meals and fix stuff and three D print and yeah. and and run industrial CNC machine. L- literally, there's free online courses to which you can learn how to become a CNC operator and make money. And, like and build a music factory out of it. CNC Music Factory, you know, gonna make you sweat, bro. <laughs> like, Everybody dance now. Okay, we guys keep this train on the rails, man. You got no. Mass. Well, but what I, what I'm trying to say is, is that the pursuit of wisdom literally can be done by anybody, and you right. don't need to do a degree. A degrees are actually really they're nice, and and they recognize the work that you've done. But Thanks, the man. truth. You're welcome, Doctor. <laughs> Thank you. Like it recognizes the work you've done, but you, the work you've done. <laughs> but but in reality, it's available to all of us. Right. That's and, a long way to say that. And in this case, it's available even if you're in a spiritual exile, even if you feel like you're actually far from the source of what you're trying to gain, which is what the people of God are being told. Right. Right. You can access this stuff. It's like saying, yeah, you. Know, well, yeah. Your analogy is a good one. Because it actually fits with this. You don't need... Because in exile and having lost their land and and the temple and things like this and the kingship, the idea for Israel in a lot of ways is, well, we can never really be holy. We can never really be the people of God again until we get the temple back, until we get the kingship, until all of the promises are restored and we look like we thought we were supposed to look. In other words, I can't really have wisdom unless I have these letters behind my name, right? But it's saying, no, it is accessible to you. It is within your reach. Right. Wisdom is here. And then the last part of the book talks about how the wisdom of God has been revealed continuously throughout salvation history. Mm. But here in the middle part of the letter, and this is why I think this all works together, um, it's this praise of wisdom and how great it is and why it ought to be sought. 
Now, what's interesting about this is that wisdom for us sounds like kind of this abstract concept. Yeah, it's a skill. It's something you have to work for and, and attain. But it still does sound abstract until you get to the Christian tradition. Specifically, you see this in the Gospel of John in a lot of ways, which looks back into the Old Testament, into the wisdom literature, and says, whoa, actually, Jesus Christ himself is the key that unlocks all of what the Old Testament people sought and longed for in seeking wisdom. Jesus, the fathers of the church often said, was the personification of the wisdom that was sought. And if you do a thought exercise with me for just a moment, I... um, and I hope this is okay to do because this is something the tradition of the church has, has pointed toward. But if you do this thought exercise, I went through this little passage, it's not very long, and I replaced the word wisdom with the name of Jesus every time. And if you read it, it totally becomes this new reality. So resplendent and unfading is Jesus. And Jesus is readily perceived by those who seek him, by those who love him, right? It sounds like the gospel. And is found by those who seek Jesus. Jesus hastens to make himself known in anticipation of their desire. Whoever watches for Jesus at dawn shall not be disappointed, for he shall, be found, he shall find him sitting at by his gate. For taking thought of Jesus is the perfection of prudence. And whoever keep, uh, forever for Jesus' sake keeps vigil shall be quickly free from care, because Jesus makes his own rounds, seeking those worthy of him, and graciously appears to them in the ways and meets them with all solicitude. And all of a sudden, then, you have a Christian way of unlocking what this sort of abstract thing that we're called to seek after actually is. Oh, we're supposed to seek Jesus, which is what God's word made incarnate, God's wisdom, God's thought now manifest in flesh. And I love this tradition that the church points us to that says, yeah, that's what you're looking for. It's not an abstraction. It's not some distant reality that you can't see. It's Jesus himself. He's made himself, God's wisdom has made himself attainable to you. Now, does that make sense? No. Oh, I'm just kidding. Of course sake. it does. I thought it was kind of cool. No, I think it's actually really beautiful. Like the, the, That's actually a really, really great way to... Cause, I kind of get excited. I was like, oh, what if you did that? Right. Well, And what's fun is about that is... is it's taking an abstract concept and allowing the word to become flesh. Like uh, literally, literally, well, right. Figuratively. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Th- I'm going to stick with that. That's what I'm saying is yeah. that, is that is we live something concrete and the, and the pre, the preamble, the, the preparation for it. Yes. Is it, it, there are a tremendous amount of abstract things within it. But then the truth is, is that Jesus is concrete. Wisdom has become flesh. And reading it that way is really cool. It's actually a really great way to to get our hearts disposed yeah. to the psalm. And I think the psalm is actually the perfect then uh, outcropping, I suppose, or, or the flow flows out of this, right? Crystalline growth from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my soul is first is thirsting, thirsting. For you, O Lord, my God. So Psalm 63, it's what's called the Psalm of David. It's, it's in the either written by David or in the tradition of David. Um, but the uh, it, it's actually a couple of things that I found interesting about this. Um, it's, you know, it's a prayer of, of longing for God's security and God's taking care of us in, in times of danger, um, usually when, when there are enemies that threaten us and there are threats that seek to overtake us or overcome us. Um, and the, the longing for God, the metaphor, is always thirst and hunger. 
We mm. long for you, which kind of flows in a weird way out of the first reading of this sort of abstract concept taking on flesh. Mm. What, is our, what is our longing? It's not, again, an abstraction. It's like being hungry or thirsty, which is then not ironic that God then makes himself food and drink. But that's a, that's a, a different aspect of it. Um, but this prayer was actually traditionally in the, in the early church, this was one of the prayers that was prayed um, early in the morning in the, the, the public recitation of the Psalms. And it has this interesting literary structure. It's only 11 chapters long, or 11 verses long, rather. But it starts with this initial expression of longing, and at the very end, it gives way to the expression of joy. So in other words, condensed in these 11 verses, there's, I long for you, I'm seeking for you. And by verse 11, we have found him. We found God because he made himself visible. He made himself available and present to us. And there's this great little uh, little um, insight in the middle that what the author saw in the sanctuary, he remembers in bed at night. And that's what's able to give him peace. And so, you know, for all of us who are like me, and I know you from time to time, who lie in bed at night... Uh, and just worry about the world or what do you call it? The dawn patrol when you wake up and you're like, Oh my gosh, the world, this is the experience of the psalmist. This is the experience of David. But he says, you know what? I'm able to sleep at night because I remember what I experienced in the sanctuary when I was before the presence of God. And if I keep that experience of the real tangible presence of God, I can literally sleep at night, which in the Christian tradition, if you translate that to the new Testament, we literally have the experience of God in the tabernacle of God in the sanctuary where we can go be with him. And we can remember the experience that no, God really hasn't abandoned us. He's literally Mm. sitting right over there and I can lie in my bed and I can remember the experience of being with him in his presence, in his sanctuary. And I can sleep at night, Mm. which is funny that the Psalm gets, gets kind of that human, you know, that kind of Mm. down to earth, I just want to sleep at night because there's a lot of things to worry about. But Jesus is in the tabernacle, mm. and I remember that, and I've been with him, and I can sleep. Mm. I don't know. I thought that was kind of beautiful. And it does sort of speak to what the psalm, or what the first reading, rather, is pointing toward that will be manifest in Jesus in the New Testament. Does that make sense? It does. I thought it was kind of cool. Which led that we, we can see it manifest now in the New Testament in Thessalonians. Absolutely. Um, Thessalonians. So, hmm. The next two readings, I believe, are explicitly about the second coming. The, 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 this, one, this one in a very explicit way. Yeah, it's but the parable a, of the ten virgins, I'm going to make a case, is about the second coming as well. Yeah, I mean... Well, which is clear, but in a more specific way than is suggested. Well, which, which I actually, you, you've taught me yeah, about. So I thought I, so. So I know how to do it. But the, the but first one... The first one. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this. I, I love this. So Paul is writing uh, to the Thessalonians. We've been in Thessalonians for a couple of weeks now. Um, Thessalonians, one of the... So I mentioned that Thessalonians is a little bit um, tamer, perhaps, than some of Paul's other letters because he's not fighting with anybody. He's not trying to put out a bunch of fires and quell a bunch of false teachings and rumors. But there is a problem that they have. And the problem that the Thessalonians are facing is that they don't understand the second coming. They don't understand what happens sort of after this life. And actually, more specifically than that, they don't really know what to do with their beloved who have died. Because the church in Thessaloniki are predominantly um, converts from paganism, not from Judaism. And Judaism has a more sort of fully formed idea of what comes after this life than these people are experiencing. And so you get the impression they're like, okay, we get Jesus. He said all these things, God incarnate. We have to receive him, Eucharist, liturgy, like, oh, there's all this stuff. But now hold on, Paul, 
what's the deal with when we die? Like mm. we have these loved ones who, who died and we get the idea of sharing Jesus's life and living these things. And it's what's going to bring us true joy and the Eucharist, all these things. But we're still a little unclear about the whole after death thing, because for a lot of the Greco-Roman world, the here and now was what was most important. And the idea of, you know, the afterlife was one that was totally immaterial and dehumanized and this this uh, Gnosticism that permeated the Mediterranean world suggested that physical things, material things, bodily things were all kind of bad. They dragged you down. And what you wanted to do was, um, uh, what's, the, what's the word, um, transcend those things just for the spiritual. Mm. And so there's this thing in Thessaloniki and other churches as well. They're like, so you're telling us, wait, what? We're going to like get our bodies back? So this thing that we've spent our whole lives being taught, we're supposed to transcend to tap into real spiritual realities. You're telling us that once we have finally transcended these bodies, we're going to get them back? Cool. We don't know if we want that, Paul. <laughs> right. But, and he's like, okay, well, here's what's up. Well, I mean, because when you think about our, our bodies, just they're affected. Like, yeah. like, like, and whenever, whenever I'm talking about Speak it. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, Scott, Scott is uh, basically a Greek statue. Well. You know, not trying to brag. I mean, not a very good Greek statue, oh, but a shoot. Greek statue, nonetheless. <laughs> okay. with like pieces broken <laughs> off and, and our arm gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the eyes, like there's a nest in it. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? Nest in it. No, but okay. like, um, excuse me. What was I even saying? Uh, the body. The body, the body is hard. It's yeah, tough. yeah, it's tough. And when we're in in funerals, I, I'm always thinking about like part of the reason why we go and visit our beloved dead is that. Mm. They, we experienced everything concretely. The word was like, yes. like we were enfleshed, yeah. and that, like, we can't get around being enfleshed as humans. Like every single time we try to make a, the the, a, the false dichotomy between spirit and the flesh, we end up in some sort of heresy and Always. some sort of twisting of, of the thing, either Always. either to Classic. the advantage of spirit or the either to the advantage of flesh. Almost every heresy in the church's history is some variation of those two. And that's where, that's where like, yes, it, like, oh, so we're going to get our bodies back? That's really, it's kind of weirdly upsetting because you say gravity right. and crow's feet and, you know, my pancreas. Gravity and, and crow's feet. <laughs> <laughs> that's the title of the podcast. <laughs> oh, I love it when we get that. <laughs> I love it when it comes straight uh, from gravity it. Gravity and, and crow's feet. Okay, sorry, continue. <laughs> So, so I can see the upsetness that they're right. coming with. They're like, Absolutely. hey, man, I want to be free, man. Like, yeah. dude, I, I'm sure roller skating's fine, but I don't need to do it again. What an interesting interpretation. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're all thinking. <laughs> like, dude, I love our roller skating rink, dude. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't like, know how to, how to add to that you particular. Know, I don't either, actually. I, it just came out of my mouth. So what Paul does, though, in, in, in a way of trying to deal with this, is he gives one of—I mean, thanks be to God that the Corinthians are having this problem, because it allowed Paul to give one of the most clear-cut explanations of precisely what's going to happen when Jesus comes again, which is kind of beautiful that we actually get that great gift. Which is the beginning of November, and, and like yes. a lot of us actually have been doing visits yeah. to, the, um, to the cemetery this yes. last week because of— recognizing this reality. We set up a little ofrenda in our house for the day, the day of the dead, and we remembered and prayed for our beloved dead. It was very beautiful, if I do say so myself. Yeah. Um, so what Paul gives is a three-step process, right? So he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. Don't grieve. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep. In other words, your loved ones who have died, so that you don't have to grieve like the rest of the world does, who has no hope. 
And that that's, I don't know, I think that, that can apply to everything in our life in this present moment in time that don't approach, we're not to approach the world and all of the sufferings and all of the frustrations of the world like the rest of the world who has no hope. Right. We are to approach it as Christians, even death, even death itself. So don't grieve like them. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose, so too through God, uh, so too will God through Jesus bring to him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. Indeed, we tell you this, the word of the Lord, that we who are alive. Okay, so step one. Here's what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. Step one. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Literally, it says in Greek, the parousia, the second coming of the Lord. All, everything that you're saying I have in Dia Lupa's song, like... One, don't pick up the phone. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay, you can so, sing it as we do. Yeah, 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 exactly. So number one, we who are still alive when the Lord comes again, we will not go before those who have already died. So they, they're not second class. They're, God is going to take care of them, in other words. For the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a cry of command, right? He's going to come down. So again, step one, the Lord's going to come down with a word of command, the voice of an archangel, trumpets of God. He will come down from heaven. He will descend. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So step one, Jesus comes down. Step two, it's going to be like rise. It's, it's like a magnet. Yeah, kind of. It's like like if Jesus was a very strong electromagnetic, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, thing like a car getting picked up. It's, everybody's going to come out of the ground. So the dead come up first, and then step three: we who are alive, who are left, will be. It says caught up together. In Saint Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible, he translated that word as "we will be rapturand." We will be raptured, literally. In other words, swept up together with them to meet them in the clouds. That's where we get the concept of the rapture. So step one, Jesus comes down. Step two, the dead rise. Step three, all the rest of us are caught up to heaven. And it says we will be raptured up to meet together the Lord in the air. And we'll be always with the Lord. Now here's what's strange about this passage. Is that if you... Oh, you're killing me. You got mass, man. We still have a whole gospel to get through. Okay. (laughs) You are killing me right now. Gonna be raptured. Um, okay, I'm, I'm there. But here's the problem with this theology, or here's the the seeming problem. Okay, Jesus comes down, right? Yep. Also, by the way, throughout the Bible, this this is a a problem in the perception of Christianity for so long. So much of Christianity perceives the sort of end of time, the eschaton, the end of the world, as us going. But throughout the Bible, it's constantly described not as us going, but of God coming. God's coming down That's step to one. us. Right. So he comes down. We go up to meet him in the air. And Paul in Thessalonians seems to just kind of leave you there. Jesus comes down, but only kind of halfway, right? Because he's in the clouds. We go up. We meet in the middle. The end. Happy ending. Well, no, no, and you're then, like, wait, And then what? we're caught up with them. In the so, air. Yeah, yeah. In the air. In the clouds. Yeah. The end. Dude, this is the thing. is It overcomes gravity and crow's feet. Well... <laughs> But so here's the implication, and this is why the word parousia do, do is not, so important. Do not imp, imp, implicate me in this Implicating situation. you in this whole problem. Okay. But do you see why this could be co- problematic? You're like, oh, okay, so then what? Because we're floating. It seems like we're just floating. And the, 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 the meaning of this passage exists in the word parousia. I learned this from N.T. Wright years ago in one of his books. Parousia, which is the word, the big fancy word, it's in the catechism that it's, we refer to as the second coming. It's not two famous singers coming together. It's not pair of Parousias. <laughs> See, I got that one. That's yeah. one musical reference I got. <laughs> okay. Because I have a middle school girl. Um, okay. Oh! We, <laughs> what are you trying to say about me? I'm saying good things. Okay. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Parousia. Parousia, it's a, it's a word we use theologically for the second coming, oh. but it's a political term. 
and it's a political term that in this this Thessaloniki was the the capital city in the province of Macedonia, so they're an important political place. So they know political terminology, and a parousia is a state visit. It's an official visit from a king or a dignitary or an official of the government. And what you would do, so if Caesar was coming to visit your town and you heard that Caesar was coming, what you would do and what's expected and required of you, you go... You'd dress right. So you'd have Caesar Caesar dressing and then you'd go out. And then you'd go out to meet him. You do this every time when time is... (laughs) This is your MO, man. But the you, more you, or less time I have, the funnier I get. It's true. It's true. But you get ready and you leave town to go out to the road on the way to meet him. Right. So that you dress can properly. dress properly so that you can process back right. into town. That's what's happening probably at the Palm Sunday narrative of Jesus. People are going out to greet him and processing back in with him. Mm. So when Paul uses the word second coming to refer to what Jesus is doing, he's saying, It's King Jesus coming back to claim what is rightfully his as king. We go out to meet him, but what is implied is that we will also then process back with him. Not to the same earth that we left, but to the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation which has been reformed and refashioned in light of the resurrection. Mm. That's a hopeful message. Yes. That's not, we're raptured off to the clouds and then that's that. That's weird. That's not the Christian eschatology. The Christian eschatology is Jesus is coming back and he's reshaping and reforming everything. And he is a king coming back to fix what is his and make it beautiful again so that we can be with him for all of eternity. And fly. And fly, but not for long because then we're coming back down. (laughs) Right. But it's actually actually really beautiful and really hopeful. Which is exactly the hermeneutiki that we need for the gospel. I think it is. Because, I think it is. Because you have the 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 ten virgins. Now, I was thinking, like, okay, this is Matthew. I know this, but we this also this is Matthew. Yeah. Like, like, does is this also present in Luke? I'm trying to remember. Or is, is this? Oh, I can't. I don't think it is. Because because there's, but I don't. There's I can't this, totally remember. As I don't soon think as so. I, as soon as I think about like the ten virgins, why ten and why five and five? Oh, it's well, I don't think it's five and five. I think it's ten. So I think this is a reference. I think it's um not a reference. I think to it the Decapolis. Finds, no, no, no. I think it finds its true context in the Jewish Feast of Atonement, of the Feast of Yom Kippur. Okay. And Yom Kippur, I think, is the interpretive key for understanding this one, which is one of the most important feasts the Jewish people celebrated. Yom Kippur fell on the 10th day of the month of Tishri. And I think the number 10 is a reference that wants to get people thinking about Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement and what is, happens on that day. Is Rosh Hashanah like at the beginning? So this is the end of the High Holy Days, right? It's the last of the... No, uh, Sukkot, uh, Tabernacles is the third one. Is so it's Rosh Hashanah, one. Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot. Okay. So it's smack in the middle. Okay, so it's ten, but it's 10 days. So Rosh Hashanah starts the month of Tishri, and then we're 10 days Correct. in. Correct, and 10 and, days in. And I think those numbers are really significant to the Jewish people. There could be other... Um, symbolism as well, right? But I, I, I don't think that one. Um, I think that's significant. I wonder, and, and because we have ten, which is always the the Decalogue. Yes, of of course, it should also get your mind thinking of God's word. The word that God speaks always comes in terms of ten, which is a, a sort of perfection, and there's there's significance to that number, which is why the Feast of Atonement falls on the tenth day of that month. Why, which is for religious people, you're only allowed to use the metric system. <laughs> it's easier. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not saying. Okay, so what happens on the Feast of Atonement? And this is where I got to fly. Um, 
like Thessalonians. Fly like a Thessalonian. <laughs> um, oh, maybe that should be the title of the podcast. Okay. Um, what, what happens well, in the Feast you can of Atonement? You can only see it if you're dead, though, because it's a Thestral. No, it says those who are still alive I know that at the coming will see it. But Harry Potter says if you can only see Thestrals if you've seen death. Oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> that is my sake. No, it's true. That's that's fair. Okay, so so here we okay. go. Declan. Feast of Atonement. Ten Feast of Atonement, um, which is so critical for understanding what Jesus does to the world. I mean, atonement is so central to Christian theology. It's how right. Jesus takes away this into the world. And on the Feast of Atonement, this was the feast day that the high priest in Jerusalem, it's the one day of the year that he was allowed to go into the temple. I'm sorry, not into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, right, and into they, the place where the presence of God dwelt. Right, they tied a rope around him in case right, he died. just in case. Just like the movie Poltergeist. Just like the movie Poltergeist. Actually, that's absolutely true. Which is a Jew reflecting on the Christian reality, but that's... The, oh, no, no. No, I don't think that's... No. Who did Poltergeist? It's not Spielberg. It's, yeah, it's Spielberg. Is it Spielberg? Yeah. All right. Um, but so the priest would go in and basically offer this uh, goat as sacrifice on behalf of all the people's sin. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, which is the, the most sacred place in the temple where God's presence dwelt. He would sprinkle the blood in front of the altar and in this place where God's presence was as atonement for all of the sins of the people of Israel. Now, what's happening is he's doing that. And there's all sorts of other things where he's doing ritual washings. He's changing clothes. He actually puts on, after he does the sacrifice and sprinkles the blood, he's supposed to change clothes into the outfit of basically what a bridegroom would wear on his wedding day to demonstrate in this, in this very physical, tangible way that Israel's wedding vows in a certain sense with God are renewed and restored. So he comes out like the equivalent of wearing a tuxedo. If you did, you know, the Easter Vigil Mass and you come out after Mass wearing a tux, it's, it's like that kind of thing. It's meant to evoke all of this imagery. So what's happening while he's in there? Now, the thing about the Day of Atonement was nobody knew how long this was going to take, right? So there's a lot of sacrifice to be made. There's changing clothes. There's washing. There's a bunch of stuff he has to do. So while he's doing all these things, going into the Holy Holies, which is terrifying because that's where God's presence is. So you got to tie the rope in case he dies. Everybody outside, all of Israel is waiting. And it could have been hours. It's like, it's like the Easter Vigil. It takes a long time. And as they're waiting outside, everyone's waiting for that moment that the high priest comes back right. out and basically announces, it's done. I'm alive. God accepted our sacrifice. Our sins are forgiven for another year. And then he would come down the steps of the temple. He would go to the home of the high priest, his house, the rectory. Right. And people would process after him and they would have a giant wedding feast. A huge, again, the Easter Vigil is the best example I can think of where we have right. a big party afterwards. It's that. But nobody knew as they were waiting, like, is he going to come out? Are our sins forgiven? Is he going to die in there? Like, everyone's a little freaked out. And one of the things that you would do... As all of Israel is gathered waiting for the high priest, young women, virgins of the culture, of the society, would dress in wedding gowns. They would dress in wedding gowns and they would come and they would be there. It was actually a great time to meet your future wife. It was a great time to get a date because people would sort of present themselves in this way of saying, hey, this is, this is where we are. But they would do it in this symbolic way of Israel waiting for their groom, waiting for her bridegroom. And so... But you, because you never knew how long it would take, you got to be patient and you got to be there and you have to keep your lamps lit and you have to make sure you have the resources to make it and stay awake and stay present until that great moment that the high priest comes out and invites you to the wedding feast. Okay, so what does all this have to do with the reading? Well, what it has to do with is that we are living right now, the Christian world 
right now is living smack in the middle of a new Feast of Atonement. We are smack in the middle of New Covenant Yom Kippur. Because when Jesus died on the cross, made his sacrifice, and then ascended into heaven, this is why the ascension is such a key component of the passion narrative that, like you always point out, always gets kind of missed or forgotten or swept aside. Right. When he ascends into heaven, that is when Jesus, as our high priest, enters into the heavenly throne room, the holy of holies, the presence of God, to offer himself and all of us as God's beloved, as our sins having been forgiven. What has the last 2,000 years of Christianity been but all of us waiting for the return of the high priest to come back, descend the steps of the heavenly temple and tell us, all right, the waiting time is over. Now come with me to the feast. Come with me to the wedding feast because now the veil is lifted. The sin has been forgiven. The sacrifice has been made. Right. And our job now is to wait for the return of the high priest, right. which Paul describes in detail in Thessalonians. But here, where we're giving this exhortation to be ready because mm. you are smack in the middle of the longest feast day that has ever happened in human history, mm. a 2,000-year-long feast day that we're still waiting for the end of. That's one heck of a long Easter vigil, man. It's what we call the end times, man. It's what we call the end times. This is the thing is that the end times were inaugurated in the ascension. And that's exactly actually, right. And that, that's actually why. But not completed. But not completed. And that's why and we're we in the in between. Je- Jesus wins. We're just yes. waiting for the return of the king. Exactly right. We're, con- we're, we're waiting for the victory celebration. Right. He's won. Right. We're just waiting for him to come and take us to the party. Right. Which is why this story is so significant, particularly at this time in the liturgical year, and maybe in this time just in world history and U.S. history in general. If it feels really, t- I mean, <laughs> as we're recording this, we're all still waiting for the results of an election that we're all used to having have the day of the election. So it's there's a, a weird irony that we're literally in the middle of a waiting period. We're like, when's it going to happen? And this is Jesus on a whole different sphere and level, a different kind of politics, a different kind of kingship saying, yeah, patience is key to this one. Don't lose your minds. Don't lose heart. Don't lose your patience. Don't let your oil run dry, man, because you got to wait it out because I'm coming and you got to be ready when I do. Wow. Yeah, I stayed up to about 2.30 the other night watching uh, <laughs> watching the, the election results. I kept waking up in the night and checking my phone. Like, anything? Yeah, yeah. Anything? Yeah, yeah. Nothing. I, well, that, that, well, yeah, and it's 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 still happening to me literally right now. I mean, yeah. it's like like I'm like, okay, oh, well, you know, <laughs> what are we doing? And, but but isn't that actually the Christian spirit of saying like, yes. you know, we have no idea how long this is going to go on. Right. You know, it's a it's a it's a great place to find a date. You know, the but world, why not? the world as as it is, the Christian <laughs> as, world as it is. But like, I actually think it's a, a decent metaphor for for like this this period of the end times of yeah. of saying right. like like oh wow we really are in this deep anticipation right um but right. and what we want to do is we want to be found worthy anticipating not doozy not lost not like not you know like, like you doozy just like, or dozy 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 I, not like you, like sleeping, like look, checking your phone every once in a while, like me no. staying up the whole time. <laughs> you want to imitate me as I have imitated. Yes, you know, but the so. psalmist says to be able to sleep soundly because you know God is in the sanctuary. Take that. 
dude, I got crow's feet and gravity, bro. <laughs> crow's feet and gravity. I like it. <laughs> I know. I really like your insight, Scott. Of, I was um, excited about these. Yeah, yeah like I, it's like I feel like I, I've heard I've I've heard us talk through Thessalonians, right. yeah, but yeah, to yeah. like actually embrace this liturgical expression and the the mm. the wedding garment that that Jesus dons and like that's that's what makes every wedding good it for me is the groom anticipating the bride yeah it's such a beautiful moment right yeah. i i got i actually think to be more theologically appropriate that he should actually move from the sanctuary and meet the bride halfway down the aisle Ooh. wouldn't that be cool doesn't he often come down the steps of the altar to meet her in the thing, maybe not. Mm, I mean, actually, that would be that That'd would be, be an appropriate cool. way, right. because then there's kind of cool. Because you you want that moment to be appearing into the eschaton, because it's, it's central to the mystery. Like, yeah. how do we actually allow that? Yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> no, Thank you. I'm not responsible. No, I love it. Well, cool. you guys, we did it. We made it on time. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about of anything else that I can distract <laughs> no, us I with. Don't. We did it. Well, why? Why I'm so like you have no idea how persnickety I am about time. Like, I'm, unless we're in the podcast and you have to get to mass, because then you're persnickety about time. It's basically it's making. I'm pretty sure proud. That- of all that we smashed into this podcast. Me too, because I think that it's somebody cares about time. And and it usually <laughs> just defaults to me because yeah. other people don't care about but time. But if you're with someone who cares about it a lot, you can default to not having to stress about yeah, it. Yeah, th- then you can just be like, mm. There's a metaphor in that. And that actually goes really along well with it this. It weirdly does. With our readings here. Yeah, it's it like, weirdly does. You know, like the, the whole church anticipates the return of Jesus. And so in a certain mm-hmm. sense, we... But that's maybe why there are 10, mm. or maybe that's why there are five, and you ask yourself, well, wh- what am I going to be? Am I going to be one of the ones who's, right. who stresses about this and actually like is mm. takes concern for the return of the king, or am I just going to be presumptive and right. wake up and check my phone every once in a while? Oh, geez, stop going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> <It's the worst. laughs> just, come on, it works. Uh, you know I that know. it works it's in fine. this, in this metaphor, but oh like... Gosh. It does. It doesn't say anything about your true moral. It says character. a little bit. <laughs> All right. We love you guys. Um, may God's will be done. Indeed. Forgive. We have no luxury of resentment in our life at all. We do not. Hatred has no place inside of us. That is to uh, empty um, our oil. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody wants empty oil. No. Nobody wants empty oil. Your, your car does not run well. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's true. Okay. God all bless right. You. See you next week. Okay. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.